Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's 9.30. We're going to go ahead and get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for being here. The only two housekeeping notes I have is today is food for thought. So when you leave, if you're in small group, when you leave, if you could please leave through the narthex instead of walking back through this room, um, because they'll be setting up for the lunch. They would appreciate that. The second is a reminder for everyone to turn off their cell phones. (laughs) Thank you. Last week, we did not quite have enough time to finish what we had assigned, so we are going to quickly look at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, because there's some very confusing things in here. Um, So we're not going to go line by line, super into detail, but there are a few things I think we should touch on. Where we ended, Jesus had just called the twelve, set them apart on the mountain, remember, the place of revelation, and had sent them off to do his work to proclaim the gospel, which, remember, is Mark's whole project, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And um, to, he gave them the authority, and remember, authority is a big theme in Mark, to cast out demons. And it ends with this sort of somber note about Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, who would hand him over. And this actually sets up, intentionally or not, a really interesting sort of transition into this next section about Jesus and Beelzebul. And interestingly, um, Jesus' family. So, in chapter 3, verse 20, Then he went home. And the crowd came together again. Remember, the crowd has been one of the main characters in Mark. The crowd that's always, that's always pressing on him. That's not going anytime soon. If you're tired of the crowd, sorry, they're, they're here to stay. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him. For people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. And he, Jesus, called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. 
then indeed the house can be plundered. Jesus has family problems. He has come home, and his family, it seems, has become embarrassed. Um, What does Mark tell us? They went out to restrain him, for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. So they're hearing rumors about Jesus. They're seeing the crowds, the crowds that press on him so closely he can't even eat. And they think this is a little um, (laughs) off-putting. It maybe isn't making the family look so good. The family of Jesus is going to come back next week, by the way. Early, uh, later traditions in the church found this passage so embarrassing about the family of Jesus that they actually changed the text to say the scribes and Pharisees tried to restrain him. So if you find um, sort of like, you know, not ancient manuscripts, but later manuscripts, they'll have that changed to, because it was so embarrassing that the family of Jesus would try to restrain him. But this, we all know, is like part of being in a family, <laughs> is that even the people we assume are closest to us often don't see us. This is going to be the big thrust when we look at the family of Jesus again next week. And what they're really concerned about is that the the scribes are saying he he is possessed by a demon. He has Beelzebul. Beelzebul is interesting. They say Jesus has Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Beelzebul is not a word that we find in the Greek Old Testament at all. It's only in Mark and Matthew, and Luke. So the word Beelzebul only shows up in the Synoptic Gospels. It is likely derived from the name for the old Canaanite god, Baal. And remember, if you know Old Testament, know Jesus. In the Old Testament, the God of Israel is always not just fighting against Baal, because there's no contest, but like trying to win his people's affection trying to get the people of Israel to stop worshiping Baal. There is also Beelzebub in 2 Kings 1 verse 3, which is called the Lord of the Flies. This word Beelzebub is a Hebrew term to mock Baal. It is a um, a dismissive reference to the God of the Canaanites, the mighty God of Canaan as the Lord of the flies. So people, you know, like pop culture, blah, 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 movies, whatever, um, just read old books, it's better. (laughs) They, They will talk about like, oh, Beelzebub, oh, Beelzebub, but this is, this is sort of a, a mocking sense in the Hebrew. And yet it appears that by Mark's time, or by Jesus' time, we should say, this has sort of caught on. This idea, even though it's not really in the text, there's a sort of folklore about Beelzebul as the prince of demons. And so notice here, Mark uses three descriptions for what power has the people claim has possessed Jesus. Beelzebul, the prince of demons, and Satan. Jesus actually says that one. Can Satan cast out Satan? What is the point being made here? 
whatever name you call the powers of darkness, whatever your particular cultural context with those those entities that fight against the creatures of God, Jesus is still the one who is stronger. Whether it's Beelzebul or the Prince of Demons or the Lord of the Flies, Jesus is no, they are no match for him. And so note in verse 27, we have this sort of shift. Up until now, in this pericope we've been reading today, the threat is really internal. There's Jesus and the crowd and the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus' family, which who knows whose side they're on. And it's this sort of internal threat, and this actually reflects the condition of Israel at the time, where people waiting for the Messiah, Israel, remember, remember the historical context, Israel is under Roman occupation. People are asking, has the Lord left his temple? And so these different sects pop up. Well, what we really need to do is be more attentive to God's law, to his word. That's why Rome is occupying us. Well, what we really need to do is organize a military overthrow like the Maccabees did. Well, no, actually the whole temple system is corrupt and we're going to go to the Qumran community and start a new temple. And so there's this internal division. And Jesus connects this to an external threat. In verse 27, when he talks about no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man, then the house can be plundered. So the sense here, this mention of Beelzebul, the mention of the strong man, remember in Mark, in all of the New Testament really, it's never just God and people. There are other forces at work here in this, this cosmic drama that unfolds. And again, you know, like I said last week, we don't pay them too much attention because Jesus proves over and over again that he's the stronger one. But there's also a, a significant point here in that internal strife is never just about personalities. There is a spiritual sickness that comes with breaking up of relationships. God desires that his church be one, as he says in John, the way the Father and I are one. And so a house divided against itself, it's not, you know, like if you are having conflict in your family, again, it's not a poltergeist, you just can't find your car keys. Um, if you if you have conflict and division in your family, it's not because like, oh, my daughter must be possessed by a demon, and that's why she's mouthing off so much. Like, that's why she's not doing her homework. No, no, bad, bad theology. <laughs> Don't go a full exorcist on me. Um, but humans are physical and mental and spiritual all at the same time. And so it is very unhealthy to say the problems in my marriage are because of a spiritual sickness and we need some sort of spiritual healing. But it's equally unhealthy to say 
well, everyone here is a good Christian. We just can't be in the same room together. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? There is always a spiritual component, which means that any of our, the breakdowns in families, in relationships, the first place to turn is to God in prayer. Because Jesus is the stronger one. He is the one who who brings together the things that are divided by the powers and forces of this world. And, you know, sometimes that's fallen angels, and sometimes that's like anxiety about money. (laughs) The sorts of things that break people apart. There's always a spiritual component there. So this then brings us to this... Oh, okay, sorry, I have to talk about the strong man real quick. So this can be confusing... I've read this a lot. I think I wrote a paper on this in seminary. If Satan had risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house without first trying up the strong man. Then indeed, the house can be plundered. This is an interesting parable. Because at first, it's hard to tell who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. In order to do so, we need to remember two things. One, the first name we get for Jesus, aside from Son of God, which is a big one, from John is the one who is stronger. So if someone is tying up the strong man, he is the stronger man by default. That's just like how physics works. And two, plundering if you know your Old Testament, is not like, you know, like Viking village plundering. Plundering is what the Lord does for his people. This is countercultural to us because we don't live in, you know, the ancient Near East. In Exodus 3, 21 to 22, God says, you know, have your bags packed for the Passover, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. So this plundering of Egypt, the looting of Egypt, is related to the people's liberation. The same way Jesus is freeing them from the strong man, the one who has enslaved the earth in the power of sin and death. There's one who's stronger now, and he not only will like you know, beat the strong man to make it neutral, he will plunder him. So everything that sin has claimed and decayed and has seemed lost, Jesus will not only get back but restore. This is a theme we talked about last week too. God's plan is not just to bring us back to sort of neutral, pH zero, but to exalt us. So Satan is not only defeated, and it's like, well, now he's like a mouse. No, no, he's plundered. Everything he has taken from God's people is taken back by the God who loves them. In Isaiah 49, verses 24 and 25, God fights on the side of Israel, binds up the mighty, and takes away the captives. Israel, which is held captive in exile, captive in Babylon, captive to the nations, God is going to bind the nations and plunder them by taking Israel, his people, back. 
so they are not lost forever. And in Isaiah 53:12, the servant of the Lord, remember the servant is a very big deal in Isaiah and it's going to become a big deal in Mark, divides the spoil with the strong. Jesus, like the servant, is the liberator of God's people from the powers of evil. So what is the point in all this? In case you'd missed it, if you were still thinking, I wonder who the stronger one is, Jesus has made it crystal clear. (laughs) Again, I said last week, you know, people always say like, well, Jesus doesn't call himself the Messiah. Well, that's true, but (laughs) he's under no... Like, Jesus does not lack for confidence in what God will do through him. So neither should we. So then we get to this very interesting part about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. This section of Mark has caused a lot of anxiety over the years. People end up being very afraid that they've accidentally blasphemed the Holy Spirit and will never be forgiven. It's going to be okay. Stick with me. Blasphemy used here is not used in the technical sense of, like, taking the name of the Lord in vain, misusing, you know, the holy name of the Lord God, but of ascribing something evil to God himself. We know this because Jesus says, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. See, they see the Lord God in their midst, though they do not know him. Because, remember, it's Mark, so what is hidden and what is revealed. The full power of God is both shown in Jesus Christ, in that he heals the sick, and he sets free the prisoners, and he, un- he casts out demons, and yet it is hidden. Because no one expected God to come as a craftsman, in Nazareth. So what is hidden and what is revealed? And yet they have said, they see the power of God working and say, well, that's not really God. It's an unclean spirit. They are not ascribing to the Lord the honor due his name. They are not praising God for his mighty works. And this means next week we're We're going to spend so much time talking about fear of the Lord. They are not showing the proper proper fear and reverence and awe and love of the Lord God. And I also think, you know, we don't worry about, like, casting out demons so much these days. But gosh, it can sometimes be really hard to see something good happen for someone else. Especially when it's something you wanted or a person you don't like, or a person who really doesn't deserve to have something good happen for them. And to say, like, thanks be to God that this good thing has happened for this person. Thanks be to God that God's grace and mercy has been shown to this person. I remember when I, I may have told this story in here before. When I was eight, 
I was going to be an acolyte. In my, you know, this is small church ministry. You teach eight-year-olds to do everything. So I was going to be an acolyte. I wasn't strong enough to carry the cross, but I could carry a torch. And I was so excited, you know me, I was like so excited to participate in the liturgy and I was going to be in front of people and I was going to work with, you know, the priests and the deacons and this was going to be great. And at the last minute, my sister said, well, I want to acolyte too. And I was like, well, then I don't want to do it. (laughs) If she's going to do it, I don't want to do it. See, I wasn't willing because I was eight, but also fallen. (laughs) There's a reason Augustine believed in original sin from watching children, right? I wasn't willing to share the thing I loved with her. I wasn't willing. I couldn't give over that excitement and share it with someone else. It had to be mine. Because was it really about serving in the church or about me being in front of people and everyone telling me I did a good job? And so this is what Jesus is talking about is like they see, it's similar to the man with the withered hand. They see a man healed on the Sabbath and they're like, well, it must be a demon. Because how could something good happen for somebody else and not for me? And so this relates, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit actually more closely relates to the biblical concept of hardness of heart. Remember when Jesus heals the man with the withered hand and he is outraged and grieved at the scribes and the Pharisees' hardness of heart. That they see this man healed and respond with anger rather than compassion and joy. So it's not saying like, well, you know, I hate the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's, it's, it's much more complicated than that. It's not about like, Here's the checkbox. Have you blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Well, you can never be forgiven. The question Jesus raises here is, can hearts be so hard that they can reject God's call forever? And this sense of call is something we've been talking about. You know, when Jesus says, follow me, do the disciples really have a choice? Or is he calling with the same authority that says, be silent and come out of him? The demons don't have a choice. Do the disciples have a choice? Well, this would imply, yes. There is at least a risk that your heart can become so hard that God can call you your whole life and you don't respond. So, If you never, the question of an unforgivable sin, it's not like, oops, I accidentally stepped into this thing and now I can never be forgiven. But can I reject God's forgiveness forever? C.S. Lewis said, and I always found this very compelling, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. There's no one who isn't forgiven who has sought God's forgiveness. But this shows us just how deep, how how broken, how, how calcified the human heart can get. And so we we all have this risk of hardness of heart. I had it at eight years old. And it's something we should always be on alert for, not because we're like 
So here's the thing. If you're worried that your heart has become so hard, you might never be forgiven. It hasn't because you're worried about it, right? It's like the crazy people never know they're crazy. They think they're normal. (laughs) Exactly. If you have to think like, am I losing my mind? Not as much as you could be. (laughs) Could be worse. (laughs) So even if, the point is, even if you're doing everything right, like, oh no, me and my family are, we're all good Christians. We all go to church. We just don't talk to each other. We just can't have a meal together without it devolving into chaos. Broken relationship, hardness of heart. The, the healing we need is inside. Now here's the good news. Jesus is the stronger one. There is always someone... The question is, can the heart become so hard that it is never healed? Maybe. But not for those who ask for healing. Because when even when the, the unclean spirits show up to Jesus, even they are, you know, the, the people possessed, not the unclean spirits themselves, are provided this release. So even they haven't gone too far. So you haven't either. This is good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk more the true family of Jesus, you know, this Last passage in 31 through 34, we're going to sort of gloss over it because we're going to get to it rolled into these parables that we're about to look at, and because we don't have time. Week four, we move almost exclusively into parables and sayings. We had a hint of parables last week. We're now moving into some very familiar parables. But the more we dig into them, I think we'll find... There's some cool stuff going on here. Sometimes parables, this is a side note, when people preach parables, they end up sounding like Aesop's fables, where it's like, and the moral of the story is, go and do likewise, But which is like, fine, yes, go and do likewise, okay, great. But Jesus is actually using them to reveal, to uncover something about who he is, about the kingdom of God. First, the parable of the seeds, Mark 4, verses 1 through 9. This is often called the parable of the sower. My Bible says the parable of the sower. As I was looking at this, I was like, yeah, the sower is not really the main thing here. (laughs) This is actually about the seeds. Again, he began to teach beside the lake. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the lake and sat there while the whole crowd was beside the lake on the land. So always remember setting. What do we know about the lake? The more correct term is the sea. It's the Sea of Galilee. The sea is where he called Jesus. No, the disciples, where Jesus called the disciples. They were fishing. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 13, he taught the crowds on the shores of the sea. But remember, too, to think cosmic. The sea are these primal elements 
from which God draws creation. Remember, nothing is ever just one thing in Mark. Yes, it's a location. It's the Sea of Galilee. It's Tiberias. It's Capernaum. Great. That's a real place. Jesus is a real person in history. And the sea is the, the, that from which the Lord divides the waters and the land appears and creation is made new. And so this is interesting. They bring him a boat and he gets into the boat because the crowd's pressing around him on one level, right? He needs a, he, he can't teach if everyone's like right here. That doesn't work. And yet in the Greek, this is such an interesting phrase. Literally it means, so this is in verse one. He got into a boat on the lake and sat there is what my translation says. Literally, so that he sat on the sea. The sea is actually the subject, not the boat. Jesus is sitting on the sea. Now, there's some debate about this. Some people say, oh, this is an Aramaic expression that just means getting in a boat. Okay, maybe, but we don't see it used elsewhere. What I think is more likely, Mother Barbara opinion time, or reader, is that Jesus is sitting on the sea, teaching them the word, the way the Spirit of God hovers over the water in creation. No Old Testament, no Jesus. Sitting is also the authoritative position of teaching in the ancient world. You don't stand up to teach, you sit. So here is the teacher sitting on the sea. (laughs) And it says he is teaching them the word, the logos, the, the word of God. So that's cool. The parable of the sower begins, no, the parable of the seeds. He begins to teach them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen. This is a strong word in Greek. This is the beginning of verse 3. Pay attention he says. Look up. It's an imperative. And then he tells this parable, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, again, sandwich, let anyone with ears to hear listen. We, Jesus is going to explain this parable for like the first and only time. He actually tells us what a parable means. So we don't need to go super into detail of it. The important thing to note is that there are three failures and one success. Three of the, all the seed that is scattered, three of them do not last. One of them does. And note this too. Again, God doesn't bring us back to neutral. It yields 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. 
this repetition over and over and over. This is a super abundant harvest. It is unlikely that any farmer in the Galilee region has seen a harvest that brings 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So what is the point here? It is to show the overflowing work of the seed that is planted in good soil. I think of Ephesians where it says, the power of God working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. And so this gets back to this question, do you have a choice when God calls you? Yes. And God gives the growth. (laughs) Which is awesome, because all we have to do is show up with a soft heart, and wait and see what happens. There's no, like, special class. There's no training. There is. It's called coming to church. Welcome. Happy to have you. It's the day-to-day work of showing up and waiting to see what growth God gives. So, there is a call and a response. We have a role to play to yield fruit. That's the whole point of this is what what makes the difference isn't just that the seed grows. They all grow, but only one yields fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And so this is, you know, where we always hold these two things at once. God expects us to bear fruit, not to earn something, not to prove anything to him. He doesn't need it. He already has everything he needs. But to bear fruit. So then Jesus gives this interpretation to the disciples. When he was alone, this is verse 10. Those who were around him, along with the twelve, so it's the twelve plus, it's the bigger group of disciples, asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everyone comes in par- everything comes in parables. Whose translation says in verse 11, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God? Who has the mystery of the kingdom of God? Who has something else? Knowledge. Okay, good. Anything else? Okay, let me see again. Secret. Mine says secret. Mystery. Knowledge. Just Charlotte. Interesting. So this is interesting. The word here, remember I said this is where we've talked about this, you know, if you study Mark at all, you can't get away from this messianic secret. It comes from here. To you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. The Greek word is mysterion, mystery. I'm not sure why some translations went with secret. We struggle in our modern context, a mystery sounds like a puzzle, like we're missing a certain amount of information and we need to solve the puzzle. Like, oh, the mystery of the kingdom of God, if only I could find the right piece of information, then I'd understand. In scripture, a mystery has to do with with revelation. It's actually a way something is known, not a way something is hidden but it's known as in a mystery. This sounds circular. But it's, it's God talk. 
It's a way God communicates to us, but in a mystery, so that we seek after it. Paul uses this word mysterion 21 times in his letters. And every time, the mystery is Jesus Christ. To you have been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the mystery. Not a puzzle to be solved, but a gift to be rejoiced in. A mystery to dive into. And anyone who's been a Christian for more than five minutes knows, and this we will really talk about next week, anytime you think you've got a grasp on Jesus, you're about to learn something new about him. You're about to discover that maybe your confidence was based on your own imagination and not who he really is because he will surprise you. Remember that the kingdom of God is not a place. It's God's reign, his dominion on earth as it is in heaven. So then Jesus uses this very interesting quotation. For those outside, this is a little bit of a sandwich with the family of Jesus being outside the gate. With the scribes and the Pharisees not having eyes to see. For those who are outside, everything is given in parables, in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive, they may indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. This is one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament. This phrase, in order that they may not turn and be forgiven, could mean two things in Greek. It could either mean so that they may not turn. Like, I'm telling you in parables so that they won't turn. Or it means with the result that. Do you see the difference there? The one is that directed toward an outcome. The other is the outcome that happens to happen. With the result that they do not turn. Matthew cleans up Mark by just making it say the latter with the result that they do not turn. This makes sense with the rest of the statement. The quotation is from Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. But again, like in the opening of Mark, it doesn't match the Hebrew text or the Septuagint. Jesus is quoting something. Mark is quoting some text that we do not have. It's related to Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, but it's not a one for one. So here's the thing. We don't know precisely what this means. Biblical scholars have argued a lot about what it means. I asked you a bonus question in your, in your small group notes, like, what do you think it means? Your guess is as good as anyone's. Use it. Try to answer that question in faith, knowing what you know about Jesus. The point here that I think we can take away is that some here and some do not. This fits with the rest of the parable. So then Jesus explains the parable. The sower, this is in verse 14, the sower sows the word. So right away we know the seed is the word, the logos. 
And the result of what happens to the seed is the response to the word. So right off the bat, he tells us the sower sows the word. So if you're wondering what the seed is, it's the word. The fruit, or lack thereof, is the response to the word. Call and response. So there are three outcomes. The first, he says, is that Satan snatches away the seed. This, again, is not totally clear. Um, some trans- some traditions said that Satan, when Jesus says Satan snatches away, comes in and snatches away the word that is sown in them, it's the scribes and the Pharisees, that they're like keeping people from the true word. I think this smacks of anti-Semitism. <laughs> Don't love it. Plus, we don't have scribes and Pharisees, and there are lots of things that keep us from hearing the word, too. <laughs> I think what's more likely going on here is just that there, there are forces in the world that don't want you to hear and respond to God's word. There are enemies of, of God, not people. We don't turn people into enemies of God. Very bad when we do. <laughs> but there are all these obstacles that, that you know, Flannery O'Connor described evil not just as like a, a, a mute thing, but an evil intelligence. It is always for the church to remember that we, we live not in a neutral world but that the power of sin and death is working to actively pull us away from God. So there's nothing neutral in the Christian life. Everything draws you closer to or further from the word. Next he says, oh, this one is so good. Some of the seed falls on rocky ground. This is so good. I think, another Mother Barbara opinion, this is a connection to Peter. Remember, Peter has just been given, Simon has just been given the new name. The name Peter means rocky. So this has fallen on Peter ground, on rocky ground. And it's a little bit of a sandwich, like the Judas Judas sandwich. Because initially it is received with joy, and there is no disciple in the Bible more enthusiastic than Peter. except for the sons of thunder. Initially, it is received with joy, but then falls away. Peter is so enthusiastic, and then at the moment where things get, wait for it, rocky, (laughs) he falls away. I think this is a hint of a foreshadowing of what happens with Peter. And of course, like, Whenever we preach about Peter denying Christ, we have to remember that we're preaching to ourselves. Because, thanks be to God, we live in America, and few of us will ever have to be tested as to whether or not we would deny Christ. But there are Christians all over the world for whom that is a real call, a real threat. Would we, at the time of trial have the courage to, is the word rooted so deeply in us 
that we would be willing to confess Christ in the face of danger? Or would we, like Peter, say, I do not know the man? I think it's always worth remembering that there are people for whom the gospel is rooted so deep that they are willing to take Christ seriously, to take up their cross, even to the point of death. And the other good news is Peter, Peter you know, the roots are shallow. <laughs> the ground is rocky. And yet he too is redeemed. So then the third one is that thorns come up and choke the word. Thorns come up and choke the word. Oh, I forgot the scorching. It didn't make it in my notes. Okay. Sorry. The sun rose and was scorched since it had no root. This, I think, is similar to, the, um, to Peter and the rocks. But there's a sense in which there are all sorts of these things. Like, not all of our trials are like men with guns saying, do you confess, are you a Christian? (laughs) See, because again, we live in America, so we have these like scorching suns that get in the way of hearing the word. Our trials are much more like, gosh, I sometimes think about this, where I'm like, I should get up and say morning prayer. No, I'm too tired. (laughs) Well, would I, and you know, rest is important and necessary, I should respond lovingly to that person, but they really ticked me off. (laughs) These are all mini moments of martyrdom. (laughs) Except most of the time we end up saying, I do not know the man. We are scorched by the trials. We're perfectly willing to believe in God and his goodness until we're challenged. Until our happiness is threatened. And then we have the thorns. This is related to Genesis 3.18, think cosmic, where God says that because of sin, because of Adam and Eve's grasping their ungratefulness for what he has given them, they must earn their bread through thorns. Thorns are a sign of a break and a division with God. So you can hear the word, And then, if you're not, if you have a hard heart, still be choked by thorns. The thorns are the way of us living in communion with God. And then Jesus says again, but those that are sown on good soil, they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. So here he repeats it, 30 and 60 and 100 fold. This is not like God's metric for you. (laughs) Are you doing a good enough job at being a Christian? Because who gives the growth? God. We're going to see that in the next parable. But it is a good reminder for us If you think you're hearing the word, but it's not showing up in your life, maybe your heart's harder than you think it is. Again, 
well, my family and I are all good Christians, we just hate each other. This is what I call the proof is in the pudding argument. All of our Christian practices, our Bible reading, our Bible study, our coming to church, our doing our devotions, our going on retreat, our fasting, our prayer, our almsgiving, are they bearing fruit? Are you a more loving and welcoming and forgiving person? Or are they only internal? (laughs) I remember one time I was at a church, my home church, where we all went to church and we had this like wonderful, beautiful service together and everyone was just like feeling so uplifted. And then we came to coffee hour where two people got in a screaming match because the cookies were too spicy. I kid you not. Too spicy. And I was like, you mean the one that four-year-old is guzzling down? (laughs) And there should have been a warning label. And why didn't you put a warning label? And all of a sudden, these people who have just knelt next to each other and consumed the body and blood of Christ together are yelling at each other about the spicy cookies. Has the word really taken root if it doesn't change your behavior? So we don't earn our salvation, but we are expected to bear fruit. And if you show up with a willing heart, God will give an increase greater than you can ask or imagine. Here's another way we know we are expected to bear fruit. We now have these parables about the kingdom. Throughout the gospel, Jesus speaks about the kingdom, the reign of God, but there's one of two places in Mark where he does it explicitly. The kingdom of God is like. Well, we actually haven't gotten there yet. We're still on the lamp in the bushel. My apologies. Verse 21. He said to them, now remember, bearing fruit, this is what we're talking about, right? The expectation that if we hear the word, we bear fruit. He said to them, a lamp is brought in to be put, no, is a lamp brought in to be put under a bushel basket or under a bed and not on the lampstand? This next verse is so Mark. For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor anything secret except to come to light. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get. And still more will be given. For those who have, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This is so Jesus. He like just explains a parable line by line. And then he speaks in this mind-bending riddle in the next verse. I think the lampstand is, did I skip a parable? No, I did it. Okay, I'm doing it right. I haven't gotten to the growing seed. My notes are not in the same order as scripture, which is confusing. Oh no, they are in the right order. I was looking at the wrong page. That's on me. We now have sayings about revelation, what is hidden and what is revealed. So, Mark, revelation, which remember the Greek word, apocalypse. Don't freak out, not scary, not apocalypse now, apocalypse not. Revelation is God 
revealing, lifting the veil on the mysteries of the kingdom. The mysteries are the gateway to revelation. This is always part of the Christian journey, because here's the thing. God is infinite. We can never know him completely. So the whole Christian life, like I said, anytime you think you've got a grasp on Jesus, he somehow slips away and you have to rethink it. That's all about revelation, diving more deeply into who Christ is. So then he talks about the shining of this lamp, that which is revealed and that which is hidden. And I think this relates to bearing fruit. Because he says you do not put a lamp stand, you do not put a lamp under a bushel. It would be a very bad idea. It would burn up. This has always been an odd image to me. Because a bushel is a basket like made of reeds, and if you covered a lamp with it, it would catch on fire. But again, Mark, is, this is not like household instruction. <laughs> this is not bushel management 101. The emphasis here, the lampstand is the thing that lifts up the lamp so that it gives light to the whole house. It's one thing to have the word, and to be all like light and illumined by it and, and feel good about it. And another thing to let that light shine. We are not the lamp. We are the lampstand. So there's a call here. Bear fruit. Do not hide the light. And he also says things may be hidden temporarily, but all will be revealed. And for Mark, we know that where's that full revelation going to happen? On the cross. So yes, Jesus is in some ways hidden. And yet he's already laying the groundwork so that when he is resurrected, his disciples can go proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then he uses this very interesting riddle. Pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given you. For to those who have, more will be given, and from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Matthew and Luke slightly alter this to be about fairness and judgment. Do not judge, lest ye be judged. But that's not what Mark is talking about here. It makes tons of sense in Matthew and Luke's context. But Mark is talking about revelation. So this is interesting. This is a section about hearing and responding to the word. And the word, of course, is God's revelation of himself. So the parable of the sower helps us interpret this. For the ears that bore fruit, even more was given, 30 and 60 and 100. And to the ears that failed to produce, they not only failed to produce grain, they were strangled. Similarly, a lamp under a basket doesn't do anything. It's burning just as brightly, but it has no effect. The lampstand magnifies the effect. The word of God is always the same. The word of God does not depend on us to be true. Here's the thing. We could all yell at each other about spicy cookies, 
and like have horrible arguments with our families and be terrible spouses and cut people off in traffic. The word could make absolutely no difference in our lives and it would still be true. We are not the measure of the effectiveness of God's word, but our lives are the fruit of the effectiveness of God's word in us. It doesn't say anything about whether or not God's word is true. What does it show us? How hard is your heart? A soft heart will bear great fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. To those who have, this is what I mean when I say, like, you just have to show up and ask God to work in you and trust that he will 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. But to those who have not, to those who are not willing to ask the question, even what they have will be taken away. It's not a threat. It's just a fact. This is just what, what life is. The more, you, the more you offer yourself to God, the more he gives you. Again, not in like a reward situation, but because God is the sower giving growth. But if you don't ever show up in the first place, and sometimes this can come from bitterness. I've been hurt before. Why would I put myself out to be hurt again? Sometimes it can come from fear. Sometimes it can come from insecurity. Well, what if I'm not, I'm not a good enough Christian. God could never use me. I skip church like once a month to go play golf, so I'm not showing up. (laughs) I snap at my children. Who's holding you back at that point? (laughs) It's not God telling you you're not enough. You've actually started looking at your own heart and already decided it's too hard. But what if Jesus is the stronger one? What if he's actually strong enough to conquer all of our self-doubts and our fears and our bitterness and our anger? What if we could offer that on the altar and see what Jesus turns it into? Could you offer up your anger or your bitterness or your fear and watch it bear fruit? To those who have, more will be given. To those who have not, even what little they have will be taken away. Do you have the courage to show up on the chance that God might use you to bear fruit? We're at 1030. We didn't have time to talk about the mustard seed. We'll find out what the kingdom of God is like next week. All right. Thank you all for being here. Enjoy small group. Quick reminder. Yes, Kathy. As you leave, please leave through the narthex or if you're downstairs through the Sunday school exit, um, we'll have the food for thought in here. So thank you.